Good morning, everyone. Hey, I missed you guys. And I want to thank Russell and Wendell for teaching while I was out of, out of commission and for the prayers for those of you who were praying for me while I was under the weather. And I'm glad to be back now. So, well, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer then. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity together to study. We ask that our minds can be enlightened, our reasons can be engaged, and that we can come to see you more clearly today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number eight in our quarterly, People on the Move, the book of Numbers. And the title of the lesson this week is called Priests and Levites. And just before we get into the lesson, if you'll remember, last time I was here, a question was raised in our lesson. Have you ever wondered when, when the Bible says only the high priest can go into the most holy place, and then only once a year, how come Moses would go in to the uh, most holy place? Um, and he wasn't the high priest after Aaron was the high priest. And somebody raised the issue out of Exodus 33 that, that the tent of meeting that Moses went into was a different tent than the actual tabernacle tent of meeting. And uh, I hadn't heard that suggestion or possibility. So I said, well, let's go home. Let's, let's check that out. It's a good thing to, to question and explore. And so I did. And in fact, what happened in Exodus 33, this was after the rebellion at Sinai and the, and the worshiping of the golden calf, and the tent of meeting that was outside the camp in Exodus 33 was the temporary tent that was used prior to the building of the, t- the sanctuary that was in the middle of the, san- uh, of the camp until the rebellion. And because of their idolatry and worshiping the golden calf, Moses moved it outside the camp to, to as an object lesson to say, your worshiping of a false god separates you from God. And then that tent was later replaced by the tabernacle. But I think the the key point is in Numbers chapter 7, verse 89, which says the following. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the cherubim, above the atonement cover, on the ark of the testament, and he spoke with them. Where do you think that place was? Was that not the most holy place? With the tabernacle? Yes. So we find Moses going in to the most holy place of the tabernacle and speaking to the Lord after Aaron is the high priest. And that was the question I raised. If only the high priest could go in and only once a year, how come Moses is going in? You say, is that not a reasonable question to ask? And of course, the answer we came up with is that the whole Testament sanctuary system is an object lesson to teach the plan of salvation. And Moses represented Christ before his incarnation when Christ would go into the presence of the Father and the two of them would plan together the plan of salvation. The lamb or the sacrificial animal represents Christ during his incarnation. And Aaron, the high priest, represents Christ after his ascension. And so we have Christ represented in three different ways. And so it's appropriate that Christ would be going in to, or Moses would be going into the most holy place uh, to counsel with the Father, symbolizing his plan. And if you remember what Moses actually did, he came down and he's the one who instituted the whole sanctuary service, symbolic of Christ instituting or carrying out the whole plan of salvation. Does that make sense? Yes. How does it say that he went into the most holy place? He could have been outside, could he not? Well, um, since it says he was speaking to him from between the cherubim, above the atonement cover, on the Ark of the Testament. It makes it pretty clear that he was like right there. But there wasn't very big. It could have been 12 feet away. But also, if you put that together with the other place, it says that God would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to him as a friend. Didn't God himself tell Moses before, before 
before he even let them throw him out to Israel, said, he said, you will be as God to these people, and Aaron will be as your prophet. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so Moses, again, of course, represents Christ before his incarnation. And I think we find that symbolism carried through. All right, somebody read for us uh, Numbers 18.20, our memory verse for this week, right in the, the, the Sabbath lesson there. And the Lord spake to me, unto Aaron, I am thy heart and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. And as we go through the lesson this week, I want you to think about that memory verse. What does it mean that God was the inheritance to Aaron and the Levites? What does that mean? He was their inheritance. Where the other 12 tribes, if you remember, if you read the whole context, the other 12 tribes inherited, and I say 12 because you know there were 13 tribes. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Joseph's sons got two portions, Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay? And that made 13 tribes. Okay, the Levites, remember we went through this before? Okay, so there are a total of 13 tribes, Joseph's sons being split into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Anyway, the other 12 tribes got an inheritance of the land, but the Levites got the inheritance of the Lord. Think about what that might mean. Why did the others get something other than God as an inheritance, and was God not the inheritance of the other 12 tribes? Keep that question, let that ponder in your mind as we go through the class today. Sunday's lesson... If somebody read the second paragraph for us, beginning, it says, In Numbers 18.1, the Lord wanted. In Numbers 18.1, the Lord wanted to give assurance to the worshipers that they would not die, but only if they approached the sanctuary through the specially chosen priests who would act as mediators between them and the Lord. The priests, as distinct from the remainder of the Levites, were responsible for seeing that no unauthorized person approached the tabernacle, thereby defiling it. This would allay the fears of the congregation that in coming near the tabernacle, they risked death. Boy, does that warm your heart? (laughs) So the question we have to answer is, what do you think is being taught by this idea that non-priests approaching or entering into the tabernacle sanctuary uh, would defile it? What do you think is being taught by this concept that non-priests coming into the sanctuary defile and thereby um, they would incur death upon themselves? Well, before we can answer that, we have to answer another question. First, we need to understand what actually is the sanctuary representative of. And so, what do we understand the Old Testament sanctuary to be? Was it the method of salvation? Did the Old Testament sanctuary service confer righteousness? Did it uh, purge the sinner from sin? Did it heal the character in the heart and mind? Was it redemptive in any capacity, the old sacrificial system of slaying animals? No. It didn't heal or save anyone. So what was it for? A parable, she said. Other thoughts? Symbolic teaching tool. Okay. So it was symbolic teaching tool to, to teach what? Righteousness by faith. He says righteousness by faith. I like that a lot. Righteousness by faith. So the plan of salvation. Now, the question I have for you is, what was the Old Testament sanctuary constructed after? Or another way to say that is, upon what was the Old Testament sanctuary modeled or built upon? What was the, the template upon which it was constructed? The sanctuary in heaven. This is a perfect answer we've given for a hundred and, what, sixty-some years now in our church? The sanctuary in heaven. A copy, a pattern of... 
Ah, but Dean questions that. Russell questions that. Is it really the sanctuary in heaven it was copied after? Is that what the scripture teaches? Or has that somehow been an, a leap forward away from scripture that we've allowed our mind to conclude this, but the Bible doesn't teach? Let's see what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 8.5. This is one of the base roots for this idea that the temple, Old Testament sanctuary, was actually constructed after a, uh, the temple in heaven. It says, they serve as a, in a, at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was, no. Now, I'm not suggesting there's not a sanctuary in heaven. Don't, don't get me wrong here. We're asking the question, what was Moses shown that he then built the sanctuary after? Okay? This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build this tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Does it say, see to it that you make everything according to the tabernacle you saw in heaven? Is that what it says? Or another one in Exodus 25.40, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mount. Exodus 25.40. Now, I got a question. Is there a difference between the actual heavenly sanctuary and a pattern, a drawing, a blueprint, and a template of that sanctuary in heaven? Are those two things the same? If you see a pattern, a dress pattern, I don't know if anybody still makes dresses, um, but I remember the day when uh, people would go to the store and buy fabric from a bolt of cloth and buy a pattern for a dress. Remember those days, anybody? When you look at the pattern for the dress, is that the same thing as looking at the dress? No. If you look at the blueprint for a house, is that the same thing as looking at the house? So I'm going to suggest that Moses was shown a blueprint, a pattern, a template that was designed to guide the construction of the earthly sanctuary, which would then lead their minds to understand the heavenly sanctuary. Thoughts about that? Questions? Shoot it down. Tell me where it's wrong. So what does it matter? Ah, that's where we're getting to it. What does it matter? Yes, great question. So who cares? What difference does it make? Yeah, good, good point. Because we know there's a sanctuary in heaven, right? So what difference does it make? Yeah. Well, Moses is building, which would teach about the reality in heaven. The question then arises, does that mean that the reality in heaven is a building that looks like what we saw on earth? Does it mean that the reality in heaven is built out of heavenly brick and mortar? This is the assumption. When we look at the earthly, I don't know, you may have never gotten caught into this, but within the history of our church, it's been, been very common that there's this, been this idea that the thing in heaven is simply a bigger, grander scale, non-inanimate object thing made out of inanimate material of a, of a heavenly nature like streets of gold, gates of pearls, that this is what the heavenly sanctuary is constructed of. Where did the idea like this originate? Well, after 1844, remember, eight, until 2300 days, the sanctuary would be cleansed, and the Millerites thought the sanctuary was the earth. And after 1844, the Lord didn't come. So they said, man, something must be wrong. Well, let's, let's check our dates. Well, we're confident that we look at the, the prophetic time period that this is right. So then it must be the sanctuary that, that, that we have wrong. And so they started searching scripture. And the logic goes like this. Nowhere in scripture do we find that the earth is taught to be the sanctuary. Correct? Correct. And then the logic goes, the Bible only teaches two sanctuaries. 
the Old Testament sanctuary and the heavenly sanctuary we read about just a moment ago in, in Hebrews. So since the Old Testament earthly sanctuary is no longer on earth in 1844, then by default it must mean something in heaven. Is it true that the Bible only teaches those two sanctuaries? Or does it teach us another one? Well, uh, let's this. Uh, and by the way, do you know most mainstream Christian churches reject our teaching on the heavenly sanctuary? And I'm going to suggest to you they reject it for two reasons. One, because we have misrepresented what the heavenly sanctuary is as a, as a something made out of heavenly bricks and mortar. And two, because they have misunderstood the actual gospel message and plan of salvation as penal substitution accomplished at the cross. The majority of Christians believe that what was necessary for salvation is that our legal penalty had to be paid and it was full and complete at the cross and salvation was done there. And there's nothing to be done since. Adventists have always taught that what was necessary for salvation was accomplished at the cross, but since the cross, our heavenly high priest has been administering his benefits, if you want to call it that, his merits sometimes refer to, to his people on earth to heal, transform, and restore us back to unity to him. So this is application phase of what he achieved through the history since the cross to prepare a people to meet him. Most of evangelical Christians reject that idea. We'll see if the scriptures actually support the idea that there is an application phase of what Christ accomplished at the cross and also give us greater insight into what this heavenly sanctuary actually is. So let's start looking at some scripture. It's very interesting what you're going to find. Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. Now, this remember, we're trying to understand what is the heavenly sanctuary. Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. Listen to this. It says, tell them this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, capital B. Who is the branch? Christ. And he will branch out from his place. Where is his place? His place is in heaven, right? Okay, so he's going to branch out from heaven, branch out from his, beside his father, branch out from his unity with, with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and become this incarnate person, humbling himself to humanity. He's going to branch out from his place. And notice what he's going to do. He's going to branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two. Wait a minute. What does this building have to do with if the sanctuary is already built in heaven? What's he branching out to build? Well, let's see what... uh, what Jesus said in, in John 2, verse 19, and you've heard this before. This, this is what they alleged him of, of in his trial. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. And, of course, they accused him of talking about the physical structure in Jerusalem. Second Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself above, sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now this man of lawlessness, is this man of lawlessness who is coming, this rebellion that's going to occur, is this before or after Christ's ascension in Thessalonians? Before Christ ascends into heaven or after he ascends? 
after he ascends into heaven. Is Paul teaching that there's a rebellion that's going to occur, and a man of lawlessness is going to go up into heaven and kick Christ off his throne in heaven and rule in the heavenly sanctuary in heaven? Is that what he's teaching? No. No, what is he saying? But he says that this man of lawlessness is going to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple do you think this is talking about? The temple of the human heart and mind. As we believe lies about God, except the false image, the image distorted, the, the false message about God is accepted into our hearts and minds, then this image sets itself up in the temple. Going on, Ephesians two nineteen through 22 Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens in God's, with God's people and members of God's house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together and becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Is your mind working? Are you starting to ask questions? Hey, wait a minute. What is this heavenly sanctuary thing? I'm not suggesting there's not a heavenly sanctuary. There is a heavenly sanctuary. The question we're asking is, what is it constructed out of? What does it mean to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary? First Peter 2, 4 and 5. And Peter, Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Is Peter saying that we are building blocks of a temple? We are living stones, stones being built into a house for God? Is that what he's saying? Hmm. So what picture do you get of a, of a heavenly sanctuary? Is it some dead, inanimate object made out of bricks and mortar like this building? Or is it some vibrant, living reality created out of intelligent beings in which God dwells by his spirit, animating and, and live and vibrant? When you read Daniel 8.14, into 2300 days and the sanctuary be cleansed, could this be referring to the cleansing of the people of God to prepare to meet him for his return? Well, I'm going to read to you from one of the founders of our church out of a book called Desire of Ages. Some of you might have heard of it. Page 161. It says, In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and for the world. That's what we just said a minute ago. I said, what was the purpose of that old system? You guys said it was a parable. It was an object lesson. It was something to teach us. Notice. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. What's the purpose of heaven? God dwells in humanity. And through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. Did you realize your destiny is to be a dwelling place for the creator in your heart and mind? 
But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with so much pride. They did not yield themselves as holy temples to the divine spirit. The courts of the temple of Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts. Now get this, because we're asking, 1844, cleansing of the temple. Could it be cleansing us? Listen to these words. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin. From the earthly desires, the selfish lust, and the evil habits that corrupt the soul. And guess what she quotes next from scripture? You're going to love this. Malachi 3, 1 through 3, which is referring to the exact same event as Daniel 8, 14. And this is what Malachi says. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. The, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, who may abide the day of his coming, who shall stand when he appears. For he is like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap, and he shall sit and refine and purify his silver. He shall purify the Levites and purge them. Who are the Levites? The priesthood of believers. It's the people that are being cleansed. Oh, you thought that was good? Wait till you hear this one. This is out of third manuscript, page 231. This is going to blow your mind. The first tabernacle built according to God's directions was indeed blessed by him. The people thus were preparing themselves to worship in the temple not made with hands, a temple in the heavens. The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at a quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without the sound of axe or hammer. The timbers were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought into the house, all prepared for use. Notice what's being, in this first paragraph, what's being set up. When they built that old object lesson, no actual uh, of, uh, cutting of the stone, shaping of the timbers, carving of the furniture was done on site. It was all done somewhere else, brought and just simply assembled on site. Right? Get this now. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the temple. In heaven, we are here as probationers and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed and we must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into church capacity with deficits or defects of character, but we must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers to God for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. What do you think? Is it beautiful? Does it make much more sense than this other thing that we've been stuck on for um, uh, uh, the century? And why is it that people reject this other thing? Does it make sense, this, this you know, scrubbing out a building in heaven? With heavenly you know, borax and Ajax and Clorox and things like that? No. Does it make sense that God is trying to cleanse a people's heart and mind from, from fear, from selfishness, from rebellion, from hatred, from, and he's wanting to, to reunite us in, in, in the circle of love? Yeah, that's what this message is about. Yes? And Christ is called the cornerstone of that building. And Christ is the chief cornerstone of that building, built upon him. Absolutely right. 
so then, back to the question that we started all this with. Now we've got an idea of what the heavenly sanctuary is. What do we recognize that the Old Testament sanctuary metaphor was teaching us when a non-priest entered it, it would be defiled? What is being taught by that? Well, what's the sanctuary again? What is the sanctuary? Okay, what are the priests representing the Old Testament sanctuary? Priesthood of believers. So a non-priest represents a non-believer. So letting a non-believer into the sanctuary represents what? If we let ungodly things or people into our hearts, they defile us. And we'll turn our hearts away from God and his path. Consider Samson and Delilah. Consider Solomon and his wives. Allowing someone that is not a priest of God into your heart allows them the ability to influence your internal world, your thinking, your motives, your attitude, your beliefs, and can defile your sanctuary. What do you think about this as the, as the interpretation of the meaning of what was being taught in the Old Testament sanctuary service? Yay, nay? So then, what are the implications have for us today? Does this have implications for who we allow to be the teachers for our children in school? Yeah. Should we allow non-believers to teach our kids? What's a non-believer? Good question. We're about to come to that. Does it have implications on who we allow to be our friends? Does it? Do friends get into your heart? What's the Bible saying, Corinthians? Bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. So should we be careful who we let into our hearts? Does it have implication on who you marry? Yes. Does it have implication on who you see as a psychiatrist or counselor? <laughs> does it? Sure it does. Absolutely. Yes. But let's look at the model. Let's look at the model. Because this goes to the question. And before we look at the model, because the model is going to give us some insights, the question is, so what determines who's a believer? Or who's a priest in God's, God's system? How do we know? Any thoughts about that? By the fruit ye shall know them. Any, uh, did, is that what's said over here? Okay. What, what fruits? Their tithe receipts? <laughs> fruits of the spirit so you meaning basically as you do it unto the one of the least of these you've done it unto me as you see people caring for the less fortunate visiting those in prison compassion so somebody who maybe like mother Teresa, who's catholic could be a priest of god or gandhi who is hindu could be a priest of god <laughs> Well, hey, certainly, certainly Caiaphas, who was part of the Jewish system, he was a priest of God, right? I mean, he was the high priest, right? So he was certainly on God's side, right? Yes. She says, do you have to believe in Jesus? Yes, you have to. Interesting question, isn't it? Interesting question. So I hear yes. I hear no. I hear, oh, back in the back. Listening to the Holy Spirit. Okay. Heart in tune with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit, Christ said, it's expedient that I leave. If I don't leave, 
The comforter won't come, but I'm going to send the comforter. When he comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. Who do you think he's listening to? The Father. Jesus. Jesus. Because he goes on to say, he will take what is mine and make it known to you. That's what the Spirit's going to do. So if somebody has the Spirit in their life, who's the Spirit's, you know, whose direction, if you want to give those kind of human words to it, uh, is the Spirit following? Christ. Christ. And the Spirit's mission is to do what? Heal. Heal. Take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in the heart of any human being that opens their heart to the Spirit. Is the Spirit, like, prejudiced and biased? Only Jews can have my Holy Spirit. No. Or will the Holy Spirit come to any human heart that will let him in? And when the human heart, regardless of the human heart, lets the Holy Spirit in, will the Holy Spirit begin healing and transforming them to be like Christ? Yes. So we read then in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 12, those who have not heard the law, Torah, Scripture, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are law to themselves, their conscience bearing witness, their hearts showing that the law has been written on their hearts. Who put the law on their hearts? What's the new covenant? Hebrews 8, 10. I will write my law where? Which member of the Godhead is doing that? That's the work of the Spirit, writing the law there. And so uh, Romans 2, Paul is saying, those who have not yet heard the truth through Scripture, but because in Romans 1.20 he says God's nature has been revealed, character has been revealed in nature, but are responding to the truth as the Holy Spirit reveals their mind to God's character seen in nature, then the Holy Spirit writes the law on their hearts and minds. And they are considered God's children. Yes? Yes. Yes. Now, for those who have the idea, what about somebody who actually tells you, I've heard about Jesus and I reject him and I refuse to accept him? What about that person? Thank you. Did you hear the question? The question was, well, if somebody tells you that, the first thing you should respond is, tell me about the Jesus that you reject. Because didn't Jesus say false messiahs and false Christ will go out into the world? And how about if the one that they're telling you they're rejecting is one of those false ones that's the only one they've heard about? And they say, I reject that messiah. And it's one of the false messiahs. Does that mean they've rejected the true Christ? No. Shouldn't we say, well, good for you. In fact, aren't they closer to Christ for having rejected a false messiah than accepting one? Yeah, so we don't want to just say, somebody says, I've rejected Jesus. Well, they're lost. We need to say, hold on, tell me about the Jesus you rejected. Well, I rejected Jesus who's arbitrary, who prefers genetic Jews over other people. And uh, won't, won't, I, I rejected a, a, a Jesus who, who doesn't care when little kids get abused. I rejected Jesus who, and this is what I hear in my practice. And you go, good for you, I don't accept him either. It's not the Messiah. And they go, really? That's what I've always heard. You had a question. Well, the Bible does say every human being has a measure of faith inside of them. So does that mean that we're all born to some extent with Jesus in us? Um, yes, actually. As soon as mankind sinned in Eden, uh, and God was dealing with both Adam, Eve, and the serpent, he said something to the serpent. What did he say? I will put enmity between you and the woman. What is being taught there? He's going to put in the heart of mankind a desire for God. 
that would naturally be there had God not divinely interposed into our hearts. Mankind, once they threw off their allegiance, once Adam rejected God and chose Satan's methodologies, his character was warped into fear and selfishness. There was no desire for good in his heart except for the intervening grace of God. And God intervenes in the hearts of all of us to give us a desire for something better. That's what it's talking about. We long for something better than this world has to offer, don't we? Yeah, there you go. So, this Old Testament sanctuary system has lessons for us today. So back to the thing, the question, who do you get counsel from? The model? Did Moses get counsel from Jethro? Yes. Jethro was priest of Midian. Was Jethro part, uh, part one of the descendants of Abraham? No. no, he was a descendant of one of Abraham's relatives. He was a relative of Abraham, but he wasn't a descendant of Abraham. So was he part of the system? Was he a descendant of Jacob? Was he a descendant of Israel? Was Jethro a descendant of Israel? No. No. He wasn't part of the system. But yet, Moses got counsel from him. What does that tell us? Jethro was a man of God. He was a priest of many. What about Melchizedek, of course? He wasn't part of the system. You didn't have to be part of the system to have the Spirit of God working in you. But you had to have a heart that was willing to respond to the Spirit of God. Now, Paul is making this argument in Romans, and this is what he says to the Jews. They're saying, well, what difference does it make to be a Jew then? Why be a Jew if anyone can be saved? What advantage is there to be a Christian then if anybody can be saved? What did Paul say? An advantage in every way. Because we have all of the wisdom, the insight, the truths, the things that can set our minds free from the distortions that hold us in darkness. We have every advantage because we have the scriptures in addition to nature, which helps us pierce through the distortions that keep our minds in darkness about God. So the issue is not about which church you belong to, but who dwells in your heart. That's the question. Are you a follower of God and his methods of loving others more than self, or are you a follower of Satan who will exploit others to protect yourself? That's really the question at the heart. And even if somebody is in the system and a priest like Caiaphas or Annas, these guys were the high priests, were they friends of God? Were they part of God's system in heart, or were they actually Satan's priests? Well, what did Jesus say to him? You're of your father, the, the devil. Jesus made it very clear they were not representatives of God's kingdom, were they? No. What does that mean for today? Can that mean we can have pastors or counselors or people proclaiming their Christianity that aren't Christian at heart at all? Yeah. So that we have to go beyond just mere proclamations and claims that people make and be discerning. And so the Bible teaches us in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Be careful who you allow yourself, whom you let into your heart. Be careful. Be discerning. Be discriminating. It is not prejudicial to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to become attached to this person who, who won't accept Jesus Christ or who won't accept God's methods, who believes that the, the, the way of exploiting others is the way to get ahead in life who believes that lying, cheating, and, and, uh, and these types of things are the way to get ahead. I'm not going to let my heart become attached and let this person intimately into my heart where they can influence me. 
No, I'm going to love that person as Christ loved them, but they're not becoming part of my internal world, keeping a separation there. You know, the two cannot become one flesh, right? As in a marriage relationship, unless they're uh, united in love. Okay, Monday's lesson. Boy, time is just whipping by. Monday's lesson. So first paragraph, Monday's lesson. It says, when we read the Lord's instructions in Numbers 18, 1 through 7, a few points stand out. First, the Lord makes it clear that he is the one who is appointing the people to these positions. Perhaps this emphasis was made because of the previous problems, not with just Korah and his cohorts, but also even with Miriam and Aaron. Now, though, there would be no question as to why these people were given these roles. They were, uh, they were there because God put them there, period. God said so, Period. <laughs> what do you think about that? How many of you growing up in the church ask questions about, well, why do we not do this on Sabbath? Why do you, can't we eat that? Why can't we do Because God said so, period. Because the Bible says so, period. Because Sister White says so, period. How many got that answer? I did. Am I the only one? Was that answer satisfying for you? Oh, man, it just fills my heart with warmth. Well, let me ask you this, parents in the room, have you ever as a parent had to say to a child, because I said so, period? Have you ever had to say that? Now, did you say that because you didn't want them to understand, you didn't have any reason for it, you just willy-nilly just made something up, or was it because your child was either too immature or too rebellious to listen? My mom says, because I was very stubborn, okay? See, it's always dangerous to have your mom in the room when you have these types of discussions. I've got that answer several times, yes. Because I was stubborn, I wouldn't listen. And and what do you hear in the Old Testament about the children of Israel? Stubborn, stiff-necked, won't listen. So is it important to see the difference as to why God is just giving these instructions, period? Or just to say, well, when God says it, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, don't ask any questions. It, It doesn't make a difference. Huge difference. God wants us to understand. What do you say to his disciples? I have so much I want to tell you guys, but... You can't handle it yet. You're not ready. His heart is to enlighten you as soon as you can handle it. That's his heart. He doesn't want to hold anything back. He is in the open. He said to to this trial, I've done everything in the open. I don't do things in secret. All the darkness and all the secrecy comes because of Satan's methods and our darkened and confused and rebellious minds and hearts. So as we reach out to him, he will pour the truth and the light and we'll understand more and more and more. Second paragraph, it says, Notice, too, the reason the Lord wanted to make these divisions, it was so that his wrath may never again come upon the Israelites. Here again we see God's mercy even amid such powerful judgments. God seeks to save his people, not to condemn or destroy them. The whole plan of salvation from start to finish reveals that the Lord's desire to redeem sinful fallen beings from the destruction that sin otherwise brings. And that last sentence, underline it because it's excellent. That last sentence is absolutely excellent and you should double mark it. The Lord, the whole plan of salvation from start to finish reveals the Lord's desire to redeem sinful fallen beings from the destruction that sin otherwise brings. That helps us understand the first part, because the first part isn't quite as clear as the last part of that paragraph. And the first part has to do with what's God's wrath. What does it mean? 
And what were the role of the Levites in, in protecting people from God's wrath? They were set there to protect so God's wrath would not burn against them again. What, what, what is all that? Well, what's, what, let's talk about wrath first, quickly. What's wrath? Passion, anger, letting go. Romans 1, 18 through 20, Paul says um, that God's wrath is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, starting in verse 18, Romans 1, verse 18. So the wrath of God is being revealed, and, and I understand the Greek there is, is active present tense, happening in Paul's day. And then he goes on to describe all the things they're doing. They're rejecting the truth about God. They don't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They make images with their own hands and worship them rather than the knowledge of God. Therefore, because they're rejecting God, closing their minds to the truth about God, God does something. Verse 24, therefore God lets them go or gives them up. Verse 26, therefore God lets them go and gives them up. Verse 28, because they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them up to reap the consequences of their own choices. So the wrath of God, Paul tells us three times, is, is God letting go and giving up. Let's see what the Old Testament says. Two places in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, 29, and 30. Mark these in your scripture because they can come in, in, in handy. Actually, 32, 22, 23, and 29, 30. It says, For a fire has been kindled by my wrath. This is the Lord. The Lord speaking, for a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realms of death below. It will devour the earth in its harvest and set afire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities upon them and spend my arrows against them. But, God's, but God says the wise will understand what his wrath really is. Here's, here's what it says just a few verses later. If only they were wise and would understand this, understand this and discern what their end will be. How could one man chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? And then in in, in chapter 31, verse 17, when that happens, I will become angry with them. I will abandon them and they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them and they will realize that these things are happening to them because I, their God, am no longer with them. So what do we find scripture teaching that God's wrath is? God letting people go to experience what their free will rebellious choice is saying. God, I want to do it my way. Leave me alone. Get out of my life. Stop trying to do whatever it is you want to do. I want to do what I want to do because I want to do it. Eventually, God, parents, you ever had kids like this? Does there come a point at a certain age where you ultimately have to finally say, fine, fine. You're going to have to go and reap it. Does it ever happen that way? And is your heart angry at them? Or is your heart breaking over the pain you know they're going to experience? This is what the scriptures are teaching. God's anger and wrath is letting letting us go when we persistently and rebelliously refuse his healing and reconciliation. So if that's what we understand God's wrath is, then what is the role of the Levites in protecting from God's wrath striking out? Tasked with revealing God. Tasked with revealing God. How does revealing God help protect us from his wrath? What is it that leads to his wrath? Well, if we know what God is like, truly like, we won't reject him. He says if we know what God is truly like, we won't reject him. So why do we reject him? Because we don't know. Because we don't know. Remember John seventeen three. this is life eternal that they might 
know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ and thou sent. So what is it that gets us to walk away from God, to reject him, to say, get out of my life? It's that we have distortions about God in our mind. We have lies. We have misrepresentations. We have misunderstandings. So the Levites were God's representatives and dressed in white, representing their healed hearts and minds, carrying the blood, ministering the blood, representing the life of Jesus, that we are to take and minister to people the truth. And as we ingest, Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. We are to be ingested or partaking of the truth of Jesus Christ into our hearts, which dispels the lies. As lies are dispelled, we are one to trust. And as we're one to trust, the heart opens. And as the heart opens, the Holy Spirit's poured out. Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. And as the love is poured into our hearts, God is love. He pours himself into our hearts. We become again that temple filled with his presence where he cleanses us from the defilements of sin and prepares us to meet him. See how the beautiful imagery all comes together. It's kind of cool, isn't it? Well, I think it's cool anyway. (laughs) And so you, by the way, have the privilege of today, here and now on earth, being a Levite, being a priest in the household of God, being a living stone, taking a message that dispels lies about God to people's hearts and minds to dispel those lies where they open their heart and trust again and are won back to love and trust. That's our job today. We are to be those ministers, those agents on earth. Third paragraph. When you think of a gift, you think of something that is not earned. It is totally of grace. This was the privilege bestowed upon these people, not because of any merit on their part, but simply through God's grace and providence. In the end, the Lord needed someone to do this work, and in his divine wisdom, these are the ones he chose. What do you think about God's choosing? Do you think God just sits up there with some heavenly dice, rolls the heavenly dice, and says, okay, I'll pick these guys over those guys? Or do you think there's a reason behind his choosing? Well, even before that, the whole nation of Israel. Why was the nation of Israel chosen? Where do we have the first inclinations that God is choosing these people from Scripture? Abraham. Abraham. He chose Abraham, didn't he? And it was Abraham's descendants that he was going to use. Why did he choose Abraham? Abraham was faithful. So my question is, do you think God's choosing of Abraham had anything to do with God's knowledge of how Abraham would respond to his call? So was it willy-nilly, arbitrary, or did God see a man that would respond when he called him? Yeah. When we think about people who say they're called by the Lord today. Oh, you have a question. Go ahead. I just had a thought. I've sort of thought about this before. If I, as a mother, said, if you obey me, then you are my child. And if you do not obey me, then you are not my child. What does that say about my character? But if instead God chose a people to show his mercy and his long-suffering to them, in spite of their unfaithfulness, we learn much more about the character of God. So we learn about God, how he treats people, despite their rebellion. We learn about who God is. If he did not choose a people and stick with them through thick and thin, and he really did, I mean, you see his discipline of them, but not hit, I mean, all the way, this much of the Bible, Yep. you see God choosing a people and sticking with them, and he would allow when they rebelled, and they were rebelling to their own hurt, he would allow the tribes to come in and, and punish them, and it says when they cried out to God, he could stand it no longer, and he would come and he would save them. But by choosing a people, it wasn't like, oh, I choose this people, the rest of you I reject. It was to choose a people to stick with them from thick and thin to show who he was. And I'm glad you brought that up because you noticed she said, choose a people and the rest of you I reject. He didn't say that. He chose them 
for the purpose of revealing himself to the world. That's right. And because there were people who were outside that system who were still saved. Nebuchadnezzar, Naaman, to name a few, the, the centurion. These people, as far as we know, never came to the Jewish sanctuary and sacrificed animals at the sanctuary. Yet we have every indication that they had that regenerate heart. So it didn't have to be part of the system. The system, as you say, was designed not for exclusive salvation, but to be those ministers, those ambassadors, those, those delegates, those priests of God to reveal the truth to the world. Same thing is true for Christians today. Our job, rightly understood, are to be those delegates, those ambassadors to the world to represent the truth to a world in darkness. Now, Christ is a light which lightens all men, and the light is shown in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And sadly today, much of the darkness in the world is being spread through the pulpits of religious organizations. Yes? What's interesting is that um, in Hebrews it talks about how Abraham um, gave sacrifices to uh, one of the high priests. Um, his name was Melchizedek. And uh, Melchizedek um, was not in the bloodline of Israel at all. That's right. And Abraham himself paid tithe to him. And um, you're still with I mean, Paul believed to be the author of Hebrews. And he's bringing that forward as he presented it to the children of Israel um, of the church at that time, saying that, you know, because, you know, you were born into his bloodline and everything doesn't guarantee you right to salvation. God grants it to all freely, and you need to accept it based on blood that he shed, not blood of Abraham. Excellent. It ties right in. Exactly. So when people claim today they're called of God, I was called to the ministry. Somebody's, you know, heard this. Does that mean they were? Well, yes and no, because hasn't God called all all mankind? Haven't every person on the earth been called by God back to become a priest of his and and a representative of his? So in one sense, it's true. All of us have been called back to God and back to to minister in his, his kingdom. Yes. But does that mean that everybody who stands up and claims that they are representing God are representing God? No, because we have Caiaphas, we have Annas, we have lots of people throughout history who claim to be representing God. Even though God did call all humanity, some have rejected his call and prefer Satan's version to God and would rather go out and promote this ugly version than the truth about God. So, I keep that in mind. Uh, bottom pink section, it says, think about your innate talents, whatever they are, no matter how hard you work to cultivate them, they are still that gifts, something given to you by God. What are, you, what are you doing with those gifts and so forth? The question I have, and we all know, God has the ability to divinely interpose in someone's life and grant them or instill in them abilities they didn't otherwise have. Samson's strength, Solomon's wisdom. In Exodus chapter 31, Belzalel, son of Uri, uh, got all this great skills to be able to make in craftsmanship to make the, the sanctuary. So God can intervene in our lives and give us direct from heaven ability, skills, and talents. Does that mean that that's how all of our abilities, skills, and talents get to us? No. Or is there a... See, there's primary intervention from God, where he does it directly, like in the example I just gave, and there's secondary intervention, where God designed humanity in his image to pass along through our genetic code capacities and abilities to our children. It's still coming from God through his original design, creation of Adam, descendancy, but it's a secondary passage rather than a direct intervention from heaven. Yes or no? You follow me on that? Yes. Why is it important to recognize that fact? If we assert, if we assert that all talents are direct in, uh, uh, blessings from God like Samson's strength, if we assert that as the, the only truth, what would be the problem with that? 
then God favors some people and gives them more talents. He then, thinks they're more worthy than other people. Then God favors some and gives more some than others. Um, and so God didn't really care about that little baby born to that crackhead mom who was smoking crack the whole way through that pregnancy and was born with all these defects. God decided to put all these defects on that kid. See, if we take this primary position, then we assert that God is the one for all of our strengths and weaknesses. But if we take that he created humanity in his image and gave us an ability, a capacity, to procreate in our image, then we have the capacity, through God's divine laws and um, template of humanity, to pass along strengths or weaknesses to our kids if we abuse ourselves or don't. Yeah. That goes to one of the... uh major points that I'm getting from this whole discussion today is that it, it makes a difference, you know, what what your choices are. And it seems to me that the momentum of uh, Christianity in general, or, or at least uh, nominal Christianity, is, is number one, to believe that God made a choice for the Israelites. Therefore, no one else has a choice. If you're an Israelite, you've got, you know, a kingdom coming and so forth and what you said this morning is that they made bad choices therefore they are not just the chosen of God anymore and the fact is that all of our choices make a huge difference and, and, let, and let's give some more evidence from scripture parable Jesus said those uh, given five, uh, five talents two talents one talent you know the story Invest the five, you get five more. Invest the two, you get two more. Bury the one, you lose the one. Now, does this mean that God decides, okay, if you work hard for him, he'll reach out from heaven and give you more? Or is this actually talking about how he designed us to work? If you decide to go and apply the talents you have, whatever talents you have, musical talent, um, artistic talent, a cognitive talents of some, of some sort, and you apply and invest those and develop those talents, what happens neurophysiologically as you exercise your brain? Do you know what happens? Your brain produces certain pro-brain healthy proteins, BDNF and other, and other neurotrophic factors that cause the neural circuits to expand. And you actually develop a, a more intricate, complex neural circuitry that actually enhances your abilities. And so you get more abilities as you apply yourself uh, neurologically, physiologically. If you exercise muscles, what happens to your muscle strength? They get stronger. If you put one arm in a sling and go work the other one out in the gym, what's going to happen? Neurologically, it's the same. What happens if you have been given an ability, uh, a gift, uh, ultimately from God, primarily or secondarily, either way? And let's say it's a gift of music. or well, let's, let's, let's take Tiger Woods, for example. I think we'd all acknowledge he is physiologically talented, gifted, right? How well do you think he would play if his whole life up to this point, he'd run with street gangs, smoked dope, drank heavily, um, you know, cigarettes, marijuana, and today for the first time steps out on a golf course? How well do you think he'd play? You see, that talent innate doesn't determine destiny or outcome. Do you think his application and dedication and hard work and investment as the, you know, as the steward of the talent cause that talent to be rewarded and grow more. Okay, that's what's being taught. So we have been given talents, but it's our responsibility to invest those talents, and as we invest our energies into bringing to fruition the talents we have, our neural circuits and our physiological abilities expand, and we get more and more abilities. That's what happens. If instead we go this other path, we lose what we have. In the back, yes. 
going back to what you said about a child being born, what if the talent that the child brings is a wake-up call to the mother? What if every talent is not necessarily meant for yourself, but meant for others? Because I believe every talent is. It's not meant for you alone, it's meant for everyone else. In other words, if you take your talent, God's talent, and you work it only for yourself, the talent atrophies. I, I think that's beautifully said. I would agree with you completely that the talents are not for our own self-interest. Our talents are to be used in the circle of beneficence where we use those abilities to bless and give to others. I would agree with you completely. Regarding the child born with some deficits and defects because of the mother's abuse that brings her to conviction, I think that would be an example of all things work together for good for those who are called. It doesn't say that all things are good, but it says that we have a God of grace and love who can take bad things and bring good out of bad things. So I would still I would still argue that that God is not divinely from heaven uh, intervening to cause a child to be born with spinal bifida, uh, various defects of various kinds. That's not God's actions. He never intervenes to bring deficits or harm or disease. Those are a consequence. In fact, the disciples said, "Who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents?" And Jesus answered the question, "Neither, neither." This is a consequence of living in a world in which uh, God's pure, pure design for humanity is being um, uh, diverted off of its course through the pathways of sin. And we've got just a couple minutes left. And oh boy, do I want to open the can of worms on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, which is about tithing. About tithing and what the purpose of tithing is, what we do with our tithing. Uh, I guess I'll just leave you with a quotation uh, or so with one of the founders of our church and see how this rests with you. It's out of a book called The Daughters of God. It says, There are ministers' wives, Sister Starr, Haskell, Wilson, and Robinson, who have been devoted, earnest, and whole-souled workers, giving Bible readings and prayers with families, helping along by personal efforts just as successfully as their husbands. These women give their whole time and are told that they receive nothing for their labors because their husbands receive wages. I tell them to go forward and all such decisions will be revised. The word says the laborer is worthy of his hire, Luke 10 7. When any such decision is made as this is made, I will, in the name of the Lord, protest. I will feel it my duty to create a fund from my tithe money to pay these women who are accomplishing just as essential work as the ministers are doing, and this tithe I will reserve for the work in the same line as the, that of the ministers hunting for souls, fishing for souls. There's actually, I've got a whole more page more of quotes just like that, where she actually talks of other women who were no longer satisfied with the use of the tithe, giving her their tithe money, and she was diverting it um, to other people uh, that were promoting the gospel throughout the country, and that she had uh, the word of the Lord to do this. Daughters of God, page 106. And then you can also look at Second Manuscript Release, page 99, where she talks about more of that. So the, the purpose of the point, this is the beauty the point is we are to be using, and this is what was taught in the Old Testament service of everybody giving their tithe to the sanctuary, is we are to be using our energies, time, money, resources for one reason, saving souls. Taking people, think about it, we're all dying of HIV, and we here in this church have a cure for HIV. Take a pill, you're cured. Man, would we be really bad people if we just held it to ourselves? Okay? Wouldn't we want to promote this cure? We have a cure for the woes of the heart of mankind. We have a cure for eternal healing. And it's our responsibility to take this truth, this remedy out to the world, uh, to set hearts and minds free. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much that you have 
gone to such extreme lengths to reach us with the truth. And we have so many distortions in our minds about you. We want to be freed of those. May, our, may the Holy Spirit report out. May you again dwell in your spirit temple. Cleanse us from fear, from insecurity, from selfishness, from distortions about you. And empower us to be true lights going out into this world to tell people about you that we can be prepared to meet you when you come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.